can talk about that if you want. <laughs> Insert your own theme tune here. Hello. Hello. Uh, it's just me, Nick, uh, today. So welcome to Citizen of Nowhere, or Citizen of Nowhere. Uh, Kerry is away. And by away, I mean he's not away. I am. I'm in Edinburgh, and I'm with, uh, I guess, Simon Evans. Hmm. Hello. Hi. Also away. Yeah, we're both away. We should stop looking at the microphone. <laughs> we really should. <laughs> like it's going to react back to us yeah. and nod. Hello down there. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know how this is for you, but I, um, I'm staying in the same flat as my wife for longer than I have done in about a year. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. No, I'm not doing that at all. I stay for the first two weeks of the festival with... Um, Dominic Frisby in the basement flat that belongs to the house of Merrin Somerset Webb, who right. is an editor of Money Week that Dominic writes for and okay. is the regular contributor to Simon Evans Goes to Market that I write and present on Radio 4. Mm-hmm. So she's a sort of triangulates our friendship, which obviously our friendship goes back to sort of mid-90s. But um, they've got a lovely house. Actually, ironically, really, used to be the uh, Scottish Labour Party headquarters, I believe. Um, right. Now it is in the hands of um, fund managers and, uh, and libertarian <laughs> free marketeers. That's I, I, very, I used to live in Crouch End, which is going through a similar trajectory. Mm. Anyway, they've got a lovely house, and very, it's only a very short walk from where we are now, but um, they go away for the first two weeks of the festival, they go to Shetland, and they let us use their basement, a couple of other people live upstairs, come and go, then they come back and have a sequence of guests come and visit them and go to shows and so on, and we have to move out. And that's, so that's why you moved into this Exactly, flat, yeah. yeah. So we've got a nice flat here, which we're sharing, me and Dominic and uh, Andy Zaltzman, and, um, and then... Uh, which is the same, that's the same group as last time. Configuration as last time, yes, exactly, because Andy came up only for two weeks, I think last time and um, so he only needed it for two weeks and so the three of us have this you know brand new need in the middle of the festival I just said hello to Andy and uh, as I was doing so his entire family gradually emerged from the room behind him he's got his family here I don't have mine here my Kate has just been my wife has been on holiday with them in Europe uh, interrailing quite bravely with a 15 year old girl and a 12 year old boy <laughs> and um, she got away with it almost until the end and then Edward came off a Segway in Vienna and uh, sort of crashed into a cycle lane and broke his wrist so uh, <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm not laughing I'm not laughing no. at your son's injury I'm laughing at the explanation. Came off a Segway in yes. Vienna. I think it was a uh, it was a sort of tour guide. She booked a tour and she didn't realise there'd be sort of you know owner operated motorised transport right. involved. You know, for a twelve year old, he said, "Oh, it'll be fine." But it wasn't fine. I don't think. I don't think that. Uh, at least it was at the the right end yeah. of the holiday. You know, it didn't ruin the whole thing. Yeah. Well, yeah, comedians, we've all had things ruined by Segways. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He's getting the hang of just how important they are to get smooth. Yes. This, um, years ago, because uh, my wife did the music uh, arrangement for them, the Segway Sisters, three-part harmony group that used right. to do, and they do, uh, you know, Rape Me by Nirvana, but in gorgeous three-part nice. harmonies. Yeah. Um, and they got Segway to sponsor them, and Segway gave them Segways they could use around Edinburgh about a week before the festival the Scottish government decided that Segways aren't a proper vehicle and you can't use them in any kind of public... Yeah, that's the case in England as well. They're, they're te- technically illegal. You see people oh, maybe, maybe in Brighton who are... Um, and there's a thing called... I think it's just called 
one or something, which is like a single wheel with a little sort of hub by the side of it that you can stand on and that moves around? Maybe you can. I've, I've had yeah. a go at one. Oh, well, I I haven't, I've I never can't. tried it, but I've seen people in Brighton using those, but I think they're all technically illegal, but it's just a question of whether anyone blows the whistle. But, um, I mean, they're hilarious, you know, this, like, you know, we all want to become like, they're the sort of jetpack, they're the sort yeah, of compromise, yeah. aren't they? The jetpack compromise, you kind of, well, you know, this will do for now then. Yeah, and I if th- it worked, it would be great, but... Um, you know, unfortunately, what they're replacing is they're replacing pedestrians. If they were replacing cars, I think yeah. that would be a tremendous idea. But instead, what you've done is increase the sense of sort of panic and discomfort of walking along the pavement rather than the amount of, of congestion on the roads. Absolutely. Yeah. I saw a guy in Salford, you know, you know the media city in Salford. Yes. Just, uh, just sort of zooming along one of those headphones and sunglasses on. Yeah. And you could just tell he had his own theme music in his yes. head. Yeah. Just... I think Media City is probably the ideal location for them, though, really. It, I mean, that's exactly what Media City needs to make sense. You know, the fact that it now takes four hours to appear on BBC Breakfast in the morning to give a sort of three-minute interview or something, you know. You need to be able to have... There needs to be some payoff. There needs to be some sort four of... Hour, oh, you mean to go to Salford from... Yeah, from London. That's you know. very London-centric of you. I know it is, yes. Unfortunately, London remains the capital, so that's still, I think, a reasonable... I mean, it is noticeable. I'm leaving a gap in case you want to edit out the song. Oh, no, we, we don't edit this. <laughs> you don't edit out the it's okay. It is noticeable how the quality of guests has deteriorated on BBC Breakfast, I think, since it went to Salford. And it's not that surprising because it's your whole day. I mean, it's fine. Yes, if you want to only draw from people who live in the northwest, then obviously it's, it's a great advantage. But the truth is, you need to go up there the night before and then you sit in their green room and you go on you know, and you do your you know, your three minutes on the news story and then you're lucky if you're back in London by lunchtime. So what they have is people from the north and people from the south who've got fuck all to do for 48 no, hours. Absolutely nothing yeah. to do and they've got a new tour coming up and we'll be playing at Salford Quiche. Right, right, right. Yeah. So I'm not saying the people of the northwest are the lower quality to those of London, I'm just saying there's roughly ten times as many inside the London metropolitan area as there are inside the Greater Manchester area, you know. It's just got you, you, the stats. Are just That's true. There are, there are more of them. Yeah, I was, I was going to try an object somehow. Well, when it was in London, you only got, <laughs> you only got northerners who had nothing the to Hebden do. Hebden Bridge, guys. Yeah, we're in Hebden Bridge now. When we're there. So yeah, you don't live in London either, do you? You're no, we're in Hove, Hove, which is south of London. Even yeah, even more absurd. I was bullied into moving there. It was a ridiculous place to go. Should not have moved to Hove. I mean, it's all right. I like the people there and everything, but. It makes no sense if you're a touring comedian. You couldn't have... I mean, I suppose Penzance or something would be even more... But even, then you would yeah. be sort of obviously eccentric, which is, you know, appealing in itself. Yeah. But, you know... I mean, really... Yeah, people would say, oh, you, you mean the guy who lives in Penzance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that one, yeah. The ordinary old codger. <laughs> <laughs> Scrawling on the underside of vegetable boxes with a crayon. But I, um, you know, yeah, Hove, people think you can just pop into London as if you're on the tube, you know, whereas in reality, right. almost always two hours door to door to any appointment I have in London, right. London yeah, outside yeah. of Victoria itself. And, um, and it's Famously reliable trains as well. Well, exactly. If, if Southern wasn't such an utter catastrophe, I mean, at least they are famously awful, you know, rather than just being, <laughs> yeah. that, rather than just being rubbish. But, I mean, people, you know, constantly complaining about Branton and Virgin. Every time I go on a Virgin train, I'm amazed at the improved quality. You know, it's astonishingly comfortable and silent. They feel pretty plush. They, uh, there's a few of them. I think the ones, the, 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 
Pendolino that were they were advertised that it was a great place to do business. Yeah. And then whatever they made, whatever the design was for the the hull, as it were, um, you couldn't get a mobile signal. Oh, right. Inside them. Oh, I haven't noticed that. Confirmed. Well, I mean that's the thing. From, well, this is a while ago. From Hove right to now. London, we go through the South Downs and, and then the, what's I think roughly called the North Downs, and and you lose signal all the time. I mean any signal at all, not because yeah. of the construction of the train, it's just not there. And I mean, I am absolutely baffled because a huge part of, of you know of, of Brighton's pitch as a, as a place to move to is it's like London by the sea, where you can work, you can get involved in web design and dip in and out of town all the time. God, I don't know how much it would cost to erect just like a, a phone mast every fifty yards all the way out <laughs> the line. But I, I'm sure if you put it, if you if you if you charged Brighton property owners a thousand pounds you know each just broadly spent an extra thousand pounds on your council tax as a one-off completely overhauled the comms network between brighton and london it would add like ten thousand pounds to their property value instantaneously because it's all people really want it's somewhere nice to live that isn't you know hideously urban and uh, like i.e brighton but you can you can keep a phone signal on the way people wouldn't even notice that the trains could the train line do it well, of course they should, yes. I mean, all these people should, you know, but nobody's... I mean, I would have thought just, like, a phone line would do it, but, of course, they don't need to because it's all roughly, you know, they're not yeah. going to lose or win any business on that. So you really got to think, who in that situation is actually going to get the most marginal gains from having phone lines? It's not EE. EE are not going to sell any more contracts just because they've got the, you know, the Brighton line. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if you're actually selling property in Brighton, and you can go, and it's fine because you won't even notice how long your train journey lasts. Whereas if you lose signal every five minutes, you really fucking notice how long that journey is taking. You know, that's my implication anyway. Yeah, I'd like to do that. I would like to, if I had one, I was thinking about it sometimes, you know, but I sometimes think, should I get involved in politics instead of just pontificating? I think politics is like, I think this is probably what's going on for a lot of people now. It certainly seems to be symptomatic. Is that politics overall, in the old-fashioned way, is just so tiring and dispiriting, and there's so much compromise, and it's so impossible to move, and there's so little elbow room. But if you take a single issue that you decide, you know, would improve people's lives on balance, and just oh, like yeah. power at it, just like sharpen your sword, and just like slash at everything that comes between you and that single objective. Then you can actually have a bit of a laugh. I think you can have a good time. And oh, and I, I think, things, yeah, you know, you're yeah. describing the feeling of being Nigel Farage now or yes. Jeremy Corbyn ten years ago. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, all those people, and and anyone who, meanwhile, just kind of goes, well, that. But then on the other hand, this, you know, mm. you just go, oh, God, you know, I would rather, you know, be a be a scout leader or something, you know, for the amount of public esteem I'm held in. And no one calls you out on it. No yes. one calls you out on just having one issue and no detail. No, exactly. The, the Brexit Party and their yeah. lack of any manifesto. Well, the Brexit Party, I think, in that respect, is a legitimate thing because it's it's being absolutely honest about that. Isn't yeah, yeah. It? Its only purpose is to hold the government to account for the for winning the referendum. But um, regardless of whether I think they should... I mean, I mean it was at that point when running in the European elections, but they, yeah, they're yeah. now talking about running in the... Uh, oh, they will do as well, because unless they, unless they are going to run, then they cannot hold their... You know, then they won't hold them to account. What will happen out of that? I, don't, I honestly don't know at this point, but I mean, I think like a lot of people, I would hope I've sort of detached from the day-to-day -day news on that front, really. I mean, it's just so... Somebody said to me years ago, what, reading the news to try and understand what's going on in the world is like watching the second hand to try and tell the time, you know? 
And, um, and I don't know that that is that. always true, nice. but it is certainly true at the moment. I mean, <coughs> it's just pointless, really. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 would, I wouldn't be able to go into my show with any kind of clear conscience no. if I didn't have that attitude. Yeah. It's just, it's just, just like, I, I could say there's a car crash <laughs> as long as I don't keep looking at how many cars are piling I up. I think it, it's more like, I mean, it, it might be a car crash, but it just depends on the level of magnification. I remember a, um, two insights that I've had about it. I was talking about this with somebody else on Twitter recently, an American who I don't know very well, which are the kind of conversations I like having now on Twitter because otherwise it just gets so heated so quickly. But um, we're talking about like the kind of the overview thing. We were talking about the extent to which, you know, the people feel that the elites have abandoned them and then you go, well, they probably have abandoned them or rather they've, they've stopped pretending that they can help them you know, without, uh, I mean, if you, depending on the level of state control you're comfortable with, then even then it doesn't usually deliver what it, what it promises it will. But I remember a situation which was, I always felt I had had an unexpected insight. I worked in advertising sales in the uh, late 80s, 89 and 90. And um, first of all, I worked on an insurance and investment magazine selling classified ads for jobs. And then I moved to an av- a magazine called Di- uh, Precision Marketing, which was about the birth of direct marketing. So you would... Um, you would get hold of names and addresses and send people targeted mail. And this was before email. Which and then you, you'd, you'd follow up and try and sell them advertising. Well, no, this was about that magazine. The magazine was about ah, that, okay. you see. So I was contacting these people and saying, this is the first magazine which is specifically about this new dawn in marketing whereby you are targeting your people. Now, this is before Google and uh, Facebook and so on right. have made this the only way we're advertised now, to be honest. I can't remember the last time I even sort of registered a TV advert. Pretty much every advert I see now has been selected, however erroneously, from algorithms that have yeah, analysed yeah, yeah, yeah. it. But this was the birth of that, and it was still being done on in a quite a bricks and mortar way. It was like door-to-door house. So one of the things that um, they did, I will get to my point very shortly, but one of the things that you, you do to do that at the time was you buy the mailing list of a magazine, which is a subscriber-only magazine, and then you get given a load of address labels on it, right? Yeah. Because if they give you the hard data, then you've got it forever. So instead, they print the address labels, and a number of them are phonies. So that if they get more than one uh, mail shot to that phony address, then they, they know, know you've they sold know them on. You've sold them on or reused them illegitimately. Yeah. Right, so like, like, the, like, like the deliberate flaws in maps. Yes, exactly. Right. The A to Z. Yeah, exactly so. So, having grasped all this and understanding it in order to be able to work on Precision Marketing Magazine... The company I'd originally worked for on the investment magazine then recruited me back to actually start selling their mailing lists to other people to set up a direct marketing company within the company. And that was the point at which I was suddenly elevated to an extraordinarily high sort of perspective and position over the entire company. It was called VNU, United Dutch Publishing in, in Dutch, based in Broadwich Street in Central Soho. They had a turnover of about 50 million at the time, I think, which, you know, it was okay for the late 80s. And, um, and there was like a, a managing director, a financial director. And then after that, the management structure all went sort of into different magazines. And I went from being like the lowliest of the low on a single non-profitable insurance magazine to working literally physically alongside the financial director, one of the two most powerful people in the company, in a single vault, because he wanted to establish this as a, as a major new part of the company. 
and he wanted he wanted to get personally involved. He thought this was the future, you know, so he was on it hands-on on a day-to-day -day right. basis. I had access to all the information about circulation that had previously been denied anyone who was in sales. You were just told the official story. This goes out to 50,000 decision-makers yep. in IT. Yeah, yeah, with, no, with the pass-around rate Yes, of exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. In reality... That was also my first job in London was uh, telesales. So. Telesales, right. So, you know, and in, in reality, circulation used to vary wildly from one month to the next. You know, one month they would think we're not made... We haven't sold much on advertising sales, so they would literally just slash the, um, the, the, the print run. They would just halve it sometimes. And you would be saying wow. to people, we're going out to 50,000 insurance brokers, and you literally were not. They were not printing that many that week or whatever. I saw all of this information. I suddenly understood all the different things that had to be kept in balance, you know, in order to keep the company viable, yeah. you know. And the, the change in perspective was almost physically dizzying. You know, I almost felt like a sense of vertigo. Suddenly, you were like an eagle soaring above this whole... <laughs> you know you know how, like, when you zoom out of a map and, and, you know, you start with your house and then it becomes your block yeah, and yeah, then yeah. it becomes your little town and then that, you know... It was like that all in one go. Anyway, I just think that's kind of how it is with politics. We all sit at our kind of at a certain level of magnification, assuming that that's where the issues are. But, you know... The change in perspective changes everything, and you realise that yes, you are kind of disposable. Your issues are disposable. Your fishing industry is probably disposable. You know, your your coal mine, your steelworks, your agriculture, your sheep farms. These things are all you know. They feel so important to you. They must be saved. You know, and yet to, to people who are trying to balance the whole system out, you know, they cannot possibly hold them all in 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 any kind of respect. Yeah, I mean, the, the, there's also the, the issue that if you are tr if you're in the job of trying to balance those things out, mm. you're given the data as it is now. Yeah. Whereas people who decided this was their issue whenever they decided it are probably working on some pretty old models. Yeah. In a bit, you know, Hans Rosling. Yeah. Um, fatfulness. Fatfulness. He wrote a book called Fatfulness, and he has various kind of um, TED style talks. The way he he asks his university educated <laughs> audience. Uh, multiple choice questions about the world and they you know in, in huge percentages get things wrong because they're working on they're yeah. working on the last time they learned the answers to this question and the answers fucking changed and, and it's almost invariably a much more pessimistic answer wasn't it that was his message yeah. really we should be much more optimistic about the world it turns out that female literacy in Africa is like twice what anyone ever expects it to be yeah like the, the average family size in Bangladesh is like 1.8 kids or whatever yes, it is yes. Yes. These things happen really fast. There's a guy I follow on Twitter called Noah Smith. He, he tweets under no opinion, uh, spelled N-O-A-H, opinion. Right. And um, he's an economist, American economist, broadly on the left, I would say, but very smart guy, big fan of Japan and interested in their economy and, and culture. And um, and he's, he's, he's pro-immigration in America, but in a way that he also at the same time wants to reassure people that you know these waves, these tides of people coming in across the southern border is old news and, and he produces information oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. to demonstrate this and yet it's extraordinary how out of date the funny thing is to be honest if Donald Trump had come along 20 years ago and promised to build a wall he would have had a point because there really was unchecked immigration on a huge scale coming across that border and there wasn't much else to do about it and obviously of course drugs were coming across as well now actually the net flow is negative I believe yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and that's largely due to the reduction of family sizes in Mexico and Central America all those places like Honduras and Guatemala and so on much, much lower population density, and that is basically what drives immigration. If people, you know, if there's enough room where you live, you don't tend to just take up, you know, your bedroll and, and walk for a thousand miles, you know, however much you've been promised. Yeah, yeah. You know? 
Uh, it's a very interesting one. I heard, I heard a podcast, it was a few years back as well, about someone who looked, looked into this and found that it was a negative net flow. Yeah. Um, went along and said, and, you know, there's a Republican guy who went, went along and said at one of these meetings, hey, listen, I've just done the fingers. And the, we're good. There's no problem. Yeah. As though this was good news to them. Yeah, but it's yeah. not good news to them because no. it's, 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 a, it's a, I mean, you know, my show this year in Edinburgh is all about tribalism and, and, yeah, and, yeah. and how many of the things that we think are opinions are actually stamps of tribal loyalty. Yes, yes. And Somebody said something very much, oh God, who was it? Was it Chesterton or something like that? The, the average man has far few original opinions than he believes. But on balance, this is probably the ones he's right, yeah. better than everything he'd come up with on his own. Uh, something along those lines. But you're right, of course, yes. We're extraordinarily mimetic as a, as a race. I don't know if we talked about this last time, but I encountered this philosopher, René Girard, um, maybe 18 months ago, two years ago. From bizarre source, actually, I was, I was reading up about Facebook, and one of the major uh, investors in Facebook in the early days was Peter... I always want to say teal, although some people say seal, but anyway, T-H-I-E-L. Yeah, teal, I think teal. And um, very, very clever guy, um, unusually right-wing billionaire, gay investor and, and sort of venture capitalist. Yeah, so yeah, quite yeah. an interesting combination of sort of personality traits. And um, Te- Technically, Eric uh, Weinstein's boss. Weinstein, that's right. Yeah. Yes, exactly, yeah. That, yes. So he is, um, and I would love to be a fly on the wall for their conversations where they don't feel they have to kind of dumb it down for them. Does, uh, Eric uh, Weinstein has a new podcast. And oh, the the first guest is uh, Peter Thiel. And it's a good two to three hours long. Oh, it's very, right. very interesting. Okay. I'll have a listen to that. I didn't know that. That's interesting. So Thiel was a fan of Girard. He said he read about him at university. Girard is a philosopher. He was American-born, but French, sort of ethnically French. And, and he returned by the end of his life to the sort of old-fashioned Roman Catholic French church, essentially, as, oh. at the end of his sort of philosophical peregrinations. But um, his great insight was that humans are so much more mimetic than we realise. Everything we do is essentially what we've seen other people doing. And in particular, everything that we want is what we think we've realised other people want. Not necessarily what they even have, but what they want. So things they've deliberately gone out and bought. So if you just, if you see that somebody's got, like, broad shoulders, you might go, I want broad shoulders. Of course, yes. But that could be just genetic. But if you see that they've bought, you know, a a nice watch, of course, and we know this is how advertising works, we see George Clooney, and these things are constantly triangulated. George Clooney's wearing that watch, therefore I want one. And of course we understand this, but he said you don't understand just how deep it is, just how fundamentally absent any original desires are, how it's all mounted on this mimetic thing, how it's just this constantly... And he goes on from that to describe the scapegoat mechanism, because, I mean, this I'm going off on a little bit of a tacky, but I think it really is useful to understand the modern world. He believed that in the pre-Christian era, most European tribes kept their, their tribal loyalty and their tribal cohesion by having occasional eruptions of violence, whereby what was perceived to be a contaminant would be thrown out. And the reason they needed this was because mimetic desire inevitably creates conflict because you don't just want what's yours, you want what other people have got, like intrinsically and fundamentally. And so obviously there's going to be jealousy. And then everyone goes, why can't we all get along? And somebody goes, I think it's because he is like a goblin, you know, or something. And it will be a child born with a club foot, you know, who will be perceived as a sign from God and they will drive him out. Then they will tell stories in which a child with a club foot turns into a dragon or a monster that was slain by the great hero or whatever, and they all congratulate themselves. They create this myth which helps the tribe to sort of believe in its history and its, and its fortitude. 
And then he said Christianity came along, which Christ, the myth of Christ essentially was based on all the other great sort of uh, prophets of the Old Testament who were all essentially scapegoats themselves. Joseph and his technical and green coat. Right. These guys are always the underdog. And the difference between the Jewish sort of tradition is that they tend to identify with the underdog and they tend to be sorry for him. And Christ... As an entire group of people who have been as once yes, cast out. Exactly, you know, even though this is from the days when they had Israel to them, or they had, you know, the lands around Judah and Galilee and so on. But even so, they had that kind of approach. And once Christianity, Christ, of course, you know, is the ultimate scapegoat, is literally nailed to a cross for our, you know, for our sins, basically. Yeah. And, um, and once we had that, that turned everything on its head and you had a far more, you had a, a sort of a, a mythical structure that allowed society to become interlinked and interconnected in a, a universalist approach, basically, rather than a tribe with its own particular sort of proprietary myths. And that's why you could have the Holy Roman Empire and the whole of Christendom. But then he said in the 19th century, as you know, Nietzsche and so on, God is dead, we lose, we lose touch with the myth, it, it dies, we try to maintain it, but we no longer really believe it's true. We can't go back to the old tribal myths because we understand now that they're, they're void, we realise intrinsically that they are hollow, that they are um, false, you know, and so we're in a bit of a predicament, essentially, and this is where we, this is what he pinned a lot of our present woes on and he himself even though I think he must in his heart of heart know that it wasn't true on a supernatural level essentially you know return to right. the church in order to avoid that but I think that's, that's, that's individualism versus communitarianism of some sort yeah yeah it's a big um... but I think that's true and that thing of like a, a tribe needs a myth you know there's a, a lovely quote I use in my show when I remember which was um Karl Deutsch who says a nation is a group of people gathered around a common error as to their ancestry and their mutual <laughs> dislike of their neighbours, which is marvellously dismissive. But you could change error for myth, you know, and you've got the same sort of basic idea. Yeah. And that's, you know, yeah, that's what humans are like. We want that. We want some kind of connecting principle to gather around. Because apart from anything else, we can't trust each other to behave in predictable ways if we don't have that shared, that shared mythos, you know, that we all believe something intrinsic that isn't, you know, just the, you know, the, the physical reality in front of our eyes. Or sacred values, some kind. Yes, yeah. The, you know, Jonathan Haidt, the... The, mm. the righteous mind. Yeah, when, yeah. When, when, he wrote, when he started writing The Righteous Mind, he was, he was writing it as a guide for liberals on how to talk to conservatives. Yes. And he, that's not how he ended up. But he, um, you know, a, a lot of it was about stop just trashing their sacred values and talk about did you read his first book The Happiness Hypothesis uh, I have I've, I've skimmed read it and I have a thing called Blinkist that gives you a little oh yeah yeah Dominic funny summary. enough introduced me I haven't used it yet I, well I recommend it's reading very, that I mean, they're very summarised it's, it's really worth your, all your time I've read it four or five times I think The oh, Happiness wow, Hypothesis okay. I, I almost like read it like the Bible just to remind myself of these eternal verities it takes essentially eternal verities in Buddhism and Christianity and Islam and so on and, and, it, and then it sort of matches them with modern scientific psychological understandings and neurological insights and so on about how the brain really you know works and, and tries to address and it says for instance quite I mean on a very simple level for instance it says Buddhism teaches that you know life is suffering and you must make your peace with that and it says but to be honest no it isn't it isn't nowadays it probably was you know in the third century yeah. BC India there was probably quite a lot of suffering quite quickly I, I think there's sometimes <laughs> when you hear someone like Jordan Peterson go on about yeah. how much life is suffering life I'm not going to do the impression yeah, not so much no, no, not for everybody <laughs> no. I mean the end's probably not for quite a lot of it is good fun you know and if you make good choices you can avoid most of the bad stuff sooner or later something bad will happen yeah, somebody you love will die, but you know you can make your peace with that. You're not 
going through life with a weeping sore, you know, which is really right. miserable, you know. If I've had one occasionally and, and not been able to get to medical facilities and that really is suffering you know well that's yeah. how a lot of people lived at that time you know so he adapts that kind of so is it wise to sort of expect that much bad stuff or should we set our heights a bit <laughs> but anyway nice. he, he talks in that and what went on to be the the righteous mind the, the 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 dimension of the sacred and the profane which is what he says is absent essentially as you say the the, the sacred text the sacred values you know that's what's absent to some extent from the liberal mindset which is very rationalist very or, and, at least they think it is and then yeah. you, you you can find them without much trouble oh, I, yeah. I have a bit in my show about the question are trans women real women yeah and then i say and i'll tell you the answer to that but not now. <laughs> and it's just, just the feeling, and I, and I go right. This the feeling you've got now. I want yes. you to, yes, I want you good. to recognise what's happening inside you, and how yeah. much you want me to tell you the answer you want to hear already. Yeah. Be- and totally. how little you will be able to enjoy this show if you think my answer is different from yours. Yeah. And the reason is. Do not... you ever address it? Give you your own. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 I come to one at the end. Yeah. But um, that's a really good point. It's a really interesting uh, uh, mind thought experiment with them. I mean, as you know, you've seen my show, and I, I, I sort of I have seen your show. Brush up yeah. against the trans thing as well, but it's, it's, it's the most extreme. It's an outlier, and I think some yeah. of the outliers within it, I think, are probably vexatious um, and are not acting necessarily in good faith, and are probably acting to the great irritation of the vast majority of the trans community. I'm absolutely certain of that, and, yeah. but the, the only reason I brought it up is because I think sometimes something like that is a sacred value. Yes. Uh, and what does he difference. say? When you find a sacred value, you find an area cleared around it, don't you? So I think that's from the righteous mind, where he says there's just this kind of there's a, a a sort of sphere around the sacred value, within which um, belief, you know, assertions are not are not allowed to be subject to rational analysis or criticism. You you just find we don't discuss this, is it, and that's how you know it's sacred. You know, yeah. of course, if you're saying Christ was, you know, is is the, the divine incarnate in, in, in man then you can't discuss that rationally you, you're not allowed to say well i don't know was he really <laughs> yes he was and that's that you know and in the which, same which way issue trans the... women are women that that becomes that again you yeah. know and it's not you know we just i'm sorry but this is you know this is my human right or whatever and that's it sure i'm talking about it but i mean and, and my argument is that, that somebody who says that hasn't told you anything about trans people they've just no. told you something about themselves yes absolutely yeah and the way they want to conduct that debate yeah yeah it, it's interesting that and, and the other thing that I, I mean I've gone about height far too much but uh, he's incredibly <laughs> not, not, you can't go about it too much in my book he's no no I, 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 found, I mean the righteous mind in particular I found a life changing book I, mm. I've never read a book that when I put it down had altered my political mm. kind of where I was on the compass by any significant amount yeah. But um, he points out with the moral dumbfoundment tests that you ask someone something and when they're trying to persuade you of why they think it's wrong, they will go to the shared value of harm and care, even though that's not why they think it's wrong. They just think it's wrong. And I have this with my family. I'm not religious, but my family are. So if I have an, I'm having an argument about abortion or, or a gay marriage or something with my sister, she, she can't just go, it's wrong because God says it is because that just won't wash with me so the argument's no. going nowhere so she ends up always has to end up sort of with like a slightly hand-waving well society it's bad for society in this way but you can't really demonstrate why mm. and 
I think that's very interesting when you, you, know, you see people's arguments and the arguments are claiming to be arguments about welfare and, and harm care but that's often just the argument that they're bringing to mind yeah. in order to try to share on ground with you I think we might have talked about this last time because I know um, when I'm in Scotland it always sort of floats to the top of my mind about David Hume and his um, uh, observation that you know the, uh, the, the rational mind the, the reason can only ever be the slave to the passions and only ever should right. be the slave to the passions that essentially we know what it is we want we feel it inside ourselves we use reason in order to rationalise our desires and our determination that those desires should take precedence over other people's desires. (laughs) And as other people have put it more bluntly, you know, excess intelligence above that which you need in order to just be able to feed and wash yourself is essentially a tool for hypocrisy as much as anything else. It allows you to be more glib, to be more, you know, sophistry an awful lot of the time. I feel very, very... I mean, it's difficult to talk about this, of course, without coming across as condescending yourself, but I do feel very... (laughs) deeply and genuinely that a big part of the problem with politics in a democracy and in this country and we're seeing of course now with the things like Brexit and the gilets jaunes and so on you see the, the ramifications yeah. of this is when those people who for whatever reason have not mastered the art of glibly explaining their desires in implausible political language consequently start losing the arguments and, and, then, and are then just given very blunt instruments with which to express their, their, their anger about that you know yeah. you shouldn't, you sh- you shouldn't just ignore everyone's political ambitions or, or anxieties for two decades and then offer them a referendum you know, right. as to whether or not they're happy I mean that's, you know, that is an absolute recipe for disaster obviously you, know. <laughs> you, get, you get one brick every 50 years and you can choose a window to throw it through that's not a good way to run the country no, it's not ideal um, there's a phrase I, I, I'm probably going to get this wrong I think it's I think they call it smart to be stupid right in, in the uh, the rationalist world right which is where people are sort of functionally intelligent but still no more rational in the positions they hold they're just yeah. much much better at arguing yes, you know, yes. And, and, and making it look rational that they held those positions yeah you can't argue from a position it can't be done there is no such thing that you can have more rationalism in the sense that you're obviously weighing up more factors but you cannot proceed without having some value judgment you cannot proceed without having some sort of price you, you probably know this the experiment with not always an intentional experiment but if people have a part of their brain that's destroyed which is like the emotional center the passions as it were you would think that they would then be able to make more rational choices they are spot, simply yes. disabled they are not able to make any choices yeah. at all they they simply hover without any and funny enough yeah, they I can't mean, have sausages or bacon they get yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. You, and i've experienced this feeling you know and, and knowing and then you get your you know you, you rebalance your, your your life and your your uh, your body you know chemistry gets back in, in check and you kind of go right i know what i want again now but it's, a, it's an awful feeling that you know Anyone, I mean, like, we probably know um, Slate Star Codex, you know that yes, blog site? Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, I can't remember, Scott Alexander, isn't it, is the, the guy who runs it. And I think he's yeah. a sort of medic, mental health professional himself, very intelligent guy. He's like one of the heroes of the rationalist community, I guess. Rationalist, which also sometimes means kind of those who are observing AI and uh, anticipating the future, they call themselves you've that You've got people well. like Elisa Yukovsky and people... Yeah, Yukowski but, but he's on that, he's on the sort of more human, so he just observes society and his blog is brilliantly rational and very coolly explained. It still enrages some people, of course, because he is pretending, or there is this suggestion that he is like a Vulcan, you know, that he has somehow rid yeah, himself yeah. of... And you just can't do that. All you can do is try and explain... Is try and observe, understand comfortably without becoming angry, other people's motives and other people's ways of thinking, and then try and weigh the, you know weigh their 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 their, uh, 
the, the, the mappers, you know, which are more valid. But you, you cannot proceed without some sort of prior, I don't think. Well, you need the prior to be a proper Bayesian. You need yeah, to yeah. Prior to yeah. Yeah. I don't know what mine are. That's the funny thing. I've never quite known what mine are. I mean, obviously, I want to be comfortable. I want to be able to enjoy a decent life. But I don't um, hanker after, you know, excessive wealth. I just, I don't, you know, so I'm not sort of... Um, I'm, I'm comfortable enough in that respect and most of the sort of irritations I have in my life I, I direct at you know immediate you know contact you know <laughs> think like yeah so I've never been quite sure what how I would like to see the world work but I think the important thing is to be at this stage is to be realistic about what the outcomes will be from any any proposed actions that you take, I think that's that's, that's, that's where we focus. We yeah, that's where we should focus our efforts at this point. I'd, uh, yeah, I I I I mean, I, I think we might have slightly different political instincts, but I, I'm absolutely with you, and I I don't think utopianism is a particularly great way to no to approach any of the tax service. Well, funny enough, I'm interested that you're doing this tribal show and I will come see it, but I mean, I think my, my father is 89 now and he was a Brexit voter, you know, and um, I think he, uh, he doesn't want a no deal thing. I think he was hoping for a sort of EFTA type arrangement, but part of his instinct was humans are tribal and the, you know, the ever escalating the sort of vastness of the supranational organisations and their ambition to dissolve us all into a sort of European yeah. super state was just not going to wash and he anticipated bloodshed to be honest you know and he just thought get out before we get to that point because that's, the, that's nation state, the nation state has historically probably been the largest unit you can realistically operate the tribal instinct act and even then it's been harnessed and distorted and stretched you're told a series of lies and myths and common errors in order to keep you loyal to the nation but yeah. at least it's it's a manageable thing and in european terms you know historically of course there was a lot of war but at least those nations they had a united culture they had a flag there was a, usually a vernacular architecture and so on which you know gave people a sense they were part of something in america the loyalty is very much more often to the state than it is to the United States of America. The state is the level at which most people's sort of mindset operates. Most people go, I'm from Utah or whatever, and yeah, they yeah. will feel that in some meaningful sense, rather than I'm an American because a Texan just has, well, he wants nothing to do with California, you know. Well, until they're attacked. Yes, of I, mean, course, I don't want yes. to bring, bring the fucking guy up again. I went yes. to see, um, um, finally playing in concert together, uh, Jonathan Hyde and Nick Clegg. <laughs> <laughs> Played on bass, uh, well, just, just quietly in the background. Yeah. Right? Uh, and it was just after Trump had been elected, and then the Brexit vote happened not long before that. Um, um, and He's a clever guy, Cliff, by the way, I will say. I, I always thought he was, un I felt he was badly treated over the, you know, I'm sure people felt betrayed over the tuition fees, but it was, they were punished more harshly than they should have been. Yeah, for yeah, that. yeah. The fact that he was kicked out of, was it, was it called the... Um, Sheffield Hallam. Sheffield Hallam, and that absurd individual elected in his place who has just been so horribly out of his depth ever since and one scandal after another. Who is it now? I can't remember his name. He's, he's been involved in sexual harassment scandals and bullying, oh, bullying his PR team. and you know, One of his PR team resigned on Twitter you know, through his Twitter account, basically. I can't remember the chap's name. He's got an absolute car crash. Right. But anyway, yeah, carry on. But, but, so but, but I, base, yeah. I was talking about um, this weird state versus nation thing they have in the states, and, and about just post nine eleven. Yeah, you know, uh, people in Texas going, you know, and, and people not understanding this urge to 
congregate the tribe yeah the, so when we are attacked that suddenly yeah. people it that activates this you know this this togetherness this tribal thing and he, and he said there were people in new york going what are they so upset about in texas they weren't attacked yeah. but he went yes they fucking were yeah yeah in yeah. their heads they massively were attacked yeah and i think correctly to feel that i mean there are two. Well, there are a number of different ways to interpret 9/11, obviously. But I think it's a for or against. It's a, yeah. Well, no, I'm broadly against. But <laughs> of those ways, you could re, you could interpret it as an attack on corporate America. You know, the World Trade Centers, which is of course yeah. an internationalist. I mean, there are you know thousands and thousands of Jews that work there, which is you know uh, you know arguably the, 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 the you know. I mean, that's about American troops in. Uh, within the Middle East, was it? Is it was it was what kicked off Osama's kind of whole thing about you know troops in in the Holy Land and so on. That, a lot of that revolves around yes, American support I mean, of Israel. So you could easily you could easily make that case. And then of course there's all those conspiracy theories that totally invert that. But I mean, pe- people in New York. What I mean is, if you live in Queens and you're like a bus driver, yeah, it's at least as feasible that they were attacking that they that you weren't attacked by nine eleven. That, that what was attacked that you were collateral that what was attacked was the emblem of America's global reach and, sure. and, and indifference to Islam and so on that's as, that's as plausible as saying that you weren't attacked if you lived in Texas I mean you could taste you could taste dust in the air in Queens and you couldn't taste it in Texas but as a target as, as like your way of life the decisions you've made coming under attack it's as, it's more plausible in a way if you work in the Dallas oil industry do you know what I mean if you're sitting in in like you know Exxon Tower in Houston or whatever that you were under attack as, than, than, than somebody I think was in the Dallas oil industry you certainly thought about the name Bin Laden yes more, more than the bus driver has exactly <laughs> yes you're probably aware of his extraordinary uh, civil engineering gifts for instance yeah. I, mean, I, I don't know why Glenn Wall called me um, a few weeks after 9-11 and said um, asked me something about websites or something we ended up on the Bin Laden you know the Bin Laden group the family no he's, the, he's not the favourite son he wasn't the, of yeah. this huge family and I ended up on their website and had a look at when what the date was uh, that the, the website was sort of last registered and it was the 12th of September 2001 Wow. It's by a bizarre coincidence. Yeah. Or not, you know, perhaps they, perhaps they absolutely had to make it over because it... God knows, I don't know how those things work. I mean, it's a, it's a rabbit hole, isn't it, if you start looking into it. There is a tiny part of my mind still finds it all a little bit bizarre. I don't know, but, you know. Well, I mean, right. I saw your show about a week ago. Yeah. <laughs> to get to get off this, because mm. um, we don't have that much time, I... Uh, and it was not what I was expecting at all. Good. Uh, there's, there's, uh, a lot less of the dancing that you become known for. Uh, <laughs> just, just, not a unicycle to be seen. It was. No. Um, no, it was largely spoken word. Yeah, it, and, and clothed. Yeah. It was uh, one of the, <laughs> English language, which was uh, a plus. Yeah. Very few noxious gases used to induce <laughs> an altered state before I began this day. It took people clean. Yeah. Um, but I didn't really know what to expect, and, it, and uh, walked out kind of going, wow, that's mm. uh, a story and a half, I guess I can say. I think two I stories, a bit... there are at least two stories, both of which, I mean, they were quite big revelations to me, uh, uh, and as we've agreed, we're not going to sort of um, 
Uh, yeah, at this point we should mention there are, there are spoilers and it's, it's well worth it if you have any intention of seeing the show in Edinburgh or on tour, you will fact both of us for not filling for not you spoiling. in. I think much. I cover the tracks fairly well on the way, most people have said so. But they were, they were two interesting revelations that have, to some extent, forced me or encouraged me to reconsider some of my positions on some of the issues we've been talking about and on the world stage generally. Although in other respects, having reconsidered them, I still feel the same. Right. But I suppose it's that sort of feeling of going, so aren't, because these are revelations of altered facts about my, myself, I suppose. But have the, so you then go back and go, were your views on these issues just artefacts of your own view of who you were in this right. argument? And if you find that they were, then that's interesting and revealing. And if you find that, no, it seems I feel comfortable enough in saying I nevertheless do feel that this is the case, then it's kind of stronger, I suppose. Well, I mean, I mean, those aren't the only two outcomes either. A psychologist might say that having perhaps had one part of your identity suffer a, yes. a, 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 a few the props being kicked away, yeah, but yeah. the others become more important and hence yeah. need to be shored up. It's interesting, it's difficult to talk about these things, isn't it, without letting people know what we're talking about, but there is, one of them was something which needed addressing and having addressed it, I now am better. So that's a sort of right. medical uh, concern which I hadn't been aware of. Yeah. The other one is... Um, something which I suppose has illuminated a suspicion about human nature that I've been sort of rolling around and I the thing is it's a new ingredient in my pondering of it but it hasn't I don't feel that I now understand or know in fact if anything I feel less <laughs> you know there's that wonderful thing isn't it I alone of all the Greeks know that I know nothing <laughs> you know <laughs> that's, the, that's the wisdom I'm still on the path towards accepting I know nothing but yeah it's just kind of loosened a few ties but um, yeah I mean it's difficult to talk about as I say without, without sort of nailing the specifics but it has it's shaken things up for me which is wonderful actually at this point in life because the yeah. worst thing that can happen to you in your 50s is you just start to calcify slightly you know and, and, and also as a comedian you can start to adopt that willingly as your persona you know I am a grumpy old man right. I have I have immutable views I am you know comfortable with my bigotries and prejudices and get used to it, you know, and that's quite a funny persona, I mean, that kind of, you know, and it goes back, of course, to, God knows, you know, Dickens, or, or even further back, sure, you could sure, be sure. a comedy character with that view, but it's probably not a very healthy way to go through life, you know. I think they say <laughs> one, of the, one of the absolute key mental um, uh, preconditions of enjoying life and of, of being happy is, is to remain adaptable to change, to, to accept the inevitability of change, you know, and if, if you... If if you don't uh, if you if you if you harden your views, then you will find yourself left behind, and and, and the world becomes colder and lonelier and, and more worrying. Yeah, that that seemed likely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> from my point of view, watching the show, um, I, I somebody had told me, oh, Simon Evans' show, that the story is amazing, and I thought, okay, that's. Not a, so that's not, not, not a sentence yeah. I expect to hear and then I'd sort of semi-forgotten that going in and there are a couple of times early on I hope you don't mind me no. saying and I thought that's an old gag of his yes yeah I'm kind of surprised not burned that in a show before that's yeah yeah and I know that one as well yeah and then 
the yeah, revelation. Yes, it's, it's really lovely. <laughs> you go, oh, that, oh, and that. I see. Yes, exactly. It's like a new light on all those things. Which it's it's an interesting calculation because, of course, you're another comedian, and we've worked side by side through Edinburgh festivals for you know probably best part of twenty years now. You'll be aware of most of those gags, and we go to each yeah. other's shows and stuff, and you'll see them. Um, of course, a lot of that audience uh, don't know those gags, and so do it. And that's the funny thing is, for those of them for whom they're just thinking, oh, that's quite funny, that's quite funny, but they don't realise that I'm sort of positioning my, my journey through yeah. comedy, it almost feels like more of a con on them, even though they're enjoying it for the first time, because they don't realise, you know, what I'm doing, and I'm, I'm almost as though it were... Hey. 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 Hello. This is, uh, don't do the pause just here. I, I could have paused the uh, the recording, but so I thought... We're just recording a podcast. Oh, do, do, sorry, it's okay, don't worry, we've paused it, but do you want to stay in the room or...? Um... And we're recording again. Sorry about that. Um, I should explain that what happened there was, as almost anywhere in Edinburgh, uh, a man with a guitar walked through. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have a couple of buskers. They come and do half an hour in the kitchen occasionally. Um... Yeah, so I do. I am slightly in that. Uh, not, it's not a, a big deal, but I do feel that slight sort of uh, moral conundrum as to whether or not I'm performing a confidence trick on those members of the audience who don't realise that I'm performing, that there is a, that they should be feeling, they should be laughing at this old material, but at the same time they should be thinking, where's this going? Because this stuff, some of this stuff's a bit old, you know. Right, yeah, yeah, Even yeah, though yeah. I am saying that out loud, I did a routine in 2012 about football fans or whatever. Yeah, but um, I think on balance, you know, as I say, everything comes together in the in the monkey's fist at the end. <laughs> <laughs> the monkey's fist. Yeah, it's a it's a knot, as I say, not a not a masturbation technique. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a thing. That a sequel by Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah, the monkey's paw is that yeah, the yeah. one that sort of cursed, isn't it? The monkey's fist is a sort of ball you can tie on the end of a rope in order to be able to give it enough weight that you can then fling it across to another ship. Ah, right. a, It looks like a sort of um, like fingers interlocking, you know, like in two hands. Two, that makes sense. It, it, it absolutely like sounds like pig's ear. You made, yeah. you made a right, <laughs> right monkey's right, fist, monkey's fist to that. But in fact, it's a very difficult thing to do yeah. beautifully. Okay. Yeah. The Turk's head is similar, of course. Which is like one that looks a bit like a turban. You know. Oh, that's oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that one either. I, I, I mean, this is Boy Scout, nineteen seventy-six to nineteen eighty-three. I think. Been yeah. living by Not the sea now. my big thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's my main attraction to uh, to the ocean is uh, the opportunity to use knots. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> so, are you enjoying doing the show? Yeah, I really am. In fact, the one thing that I'm finding irritating is I run out of time every single night. And I've, I've, I mean, I've always gone over by a couple of minutes, not always, but last year I did too. But that was, but now I've got my 30% too much stuff and I just want to keep talking about it, you right. know, and I want to go into more and more detail. And I mean, I could, of course, the ideal thing would be to cut some of that older stuff, which is amusing because it's thrown into new light. But, um, I don't know, it's just the shape and size and balance of the thing, but I really feel like I would really happily do an hour and a half. Because one of the interesting things about it, having a revelation in a show, 
there is a traditional thing that every comedian knows in Edinburgh where you do an hour and there's something called the 40 minute lull yeah, yeah, at yeah. which point the audience have sort of heard enough they start shifting and, and like shuffling a little bit and yawning and then if you're good you just work through it and it picks up again and as they know they're coming to the end they, they feel that kind of elation that they're about to be released but, um, <laughs> but if you hit them with a big revelation at about minute 38 you know that just blasts through that yeah, you know, yeah, they're yeah. suddenly in a new space altogether and um and that has made a huge difference to how I feel about the show. But I think also it means that when it gets to the end, I'm not ready to finish either because normally as a comedian, you're ready to finish because you, you're aware you've, had, you've kept them long enough, you know. It's, it's very... Um, and, and, and again, sort of not... It hasn't not hitherto your style. No. But uh, watching it, and it's clearly something that's happened recently and mm. there's a lot of this and this and, and, and you even do the thing that people do when they're telling a story that they haven't yet honed as a story yeah. that there's information that we don't necessarily we didn't, didn't need to know need that there was a mess yes. with the emails yes. anyway four yes. emails in and that yes. sort of stuff you have too much this. detail I think no no but it's, it's really like, raw no it's funny when you no you're absolutely right and, and you're right also I mean I think I'm aware of it but also quite like it or at least I'm not in a hurry to eliminate that sense of it being told as by as, as though you just met somebody at a party and go have I told you by the way this, yeah what, what's yeah, happening this. with me right now yes right? exactly yeah, and, was, yeah. and of course what's happening in my head is like I'm watching a thriller going oh but hang on oh god I wonder if yeah you know, exactly and yes. then you start you start <laughs> guessing endings but it's it's lovely it's such a what a lovely show to watch because it's yeah. you have that sense of a like a film what, the thriller thing exactly at about minute 40 and then by the end hopefully it changes into something I know this sounds utterly bizarre but I think to some extent my template for it was the Da Vinci Code <laughs> which keeps you guessing all the way through obviously as a work of literature it's risible but as a work of plotting and, and maintaining your I mean it had me in a vice-like grip oh I, I, I finished that book at 3am in the Cardiff Glees Hotel uh, I read the whole thing in one yeah, sitting yeah, just it? like oh my god but at the end it becomes quite sweet and personal and, and intimate. It, it's about his relationship with, with the young woman, you know, that he's, you know, and there's this kind of sense that family sort of takes over from what feels like almost like a world-scale conspiracy theory yeah. and, and murder and, and, and intrigue kind of comes back down again to a human scale. And although that is a bit of a, um, you know, a huge... <laughs> ambition that's kind of what I wanted to have in it and that's where I hope I mean, I it's, it's, it's not, can get there you know it's not that ridiculous I mean again without wanting to give anything away you no. do find yourself part of something that's kind of spans yes. the globe in a yes absolutely kind of, I mean it, it, it would make a good film yeah yeah well I mean we're yes there are there are possible other uh, applications of the story but as, as I say there are other people involved in the story as you're aware of you course, know, yeah, so yeah, yeah. there may be um, there may be the possibility of doing that not I don't know about a film but um, there are uh, other ways to tell the story and I'm sure they'll be explored so hopefully that's a been enough of a, of a taste of the people <laughs> yeah. will you just tell us what this <laughs> is <laughs> So you'd always thought of yourself as male. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> but it really, it really is something that you can't take yeah. to. I, mean, I, yeah. I immediately told my wife and Arthur Smith, who I was living with. Oh, did you? The, I, I went, I, but I said, Smith? if That's there's any chance you're going to see this, yeah. I mustn't tell you. And I went, yeah. no, well, I'm not going to. I'm like, well, in that case, yeah. fuck me. Funny enough, I saw Arthur Smith um, at um, the Bath Comedy Festival man, Nick. Oh yeah, Nick uh, did. Yeah, he was hosting a thing in an extraordinary house that's on the I river. was supposed to go, but I had a writing oh, job God, all day. You should have been just for the house. I mean, I think some people who rent it from a, like a billionaire, 
and it's like a really yeah. old classic sort of Edinburgh house with passages going up and it's like something actually like that antiques fellow would live in in the Da Vinci Code you know right. the one yeah, with yeah, the yeah. and everything you know and Priest it looks out, yes exactly yeah. it looks out over a, a weir on the river and everything and Arthur was there talking with Stephen Frost and Andy Smart and, um, and he said oh I've been told your show is very good um, so that was presumably by you Absolutely. thank you very much but um because he's doing one which is sort of like quite personal as well this year, isn't he? Battles Dance, yeah. Dance. Sort of finished it. Yeah, I'd like to have seen that. Sid. It's a very lovely show. Yeah. Um, Kirsty, my, my other half, does, the, does all the music for it. Missed that. I'm such a fool. But he wouldn't do a full run, yeah. And when I just can't go and see things in the first couple of weeks at the Fringe, I just find I, it really I, I'm, difficult. I'm the same. And we're now, the, I mean, I don't know when this podcast is going to go out, but this is now the third week of the Fringe. Yeah. And I, I am suddenly going to have Yes, that's true through everything. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, what do you think? It's been lovely. <laughs> <laughs> I feel as if I've spanned a natural arc of conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that feels good. Thank you very Thank much for um, having me back on. It's been a real it's pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure. Cheers, Simon. Thank you.